Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. Another episode of the Behind the U podcast, and we are joined by former Canes baseball player, former major leaguer, and current Team Israel player, Danny Valencia, who will be heading to the Olympics this summer to play in Tokyo. Danny, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Anything for the Canes family here. Better moment in Danny Valencia's career. 06, Super Regional. You hit a grand slam to win. I think he had two home runs in the game. Or 2019, you basically seal the deal for Team Israel with a home run and qualify for the Olympics. How do you how do you rate those? Um, I'd have to say that man, that grand slam in um, in Ole Miss was was probably one that sticks out. And man, I'm sorry, my dog's barking. That's good. That's all right. This is this is easy. It's a podcast. This is the full behind the you. The grand slam I probably hit in 2006. I'll never forget that. It was an Ole Miss. It was just a crazy crowd. I'm with my boys that you know we we've, we've known for some of those guys for three, four years leading up to that. I had some close friends there. That for me is something that's very vivid in my imagination. And it's just, it's just there to my brain. And I, I can't let that one go. That was a big one for me. I was a big one for the University of Miami. And it was something I'll never forget. The home run to go to the Olympics is, is huge. But granted, we were up a few runs in that game. It wasn't nearly as meaningful. Obviously, going to the Olympics is amazing. But I'm going to take 2006 uh, Super Regionals Ole Miss. So 2006, was that a full walk-off or that just kind of won the game? I think that put us ahead by four runs or something at the time. It was like in this, it was the bottom, we were the home team. So it was, or no, we were the visiting team. It's weird because in Super Regionals, you're home in a way at some point in that, in that little, in that format. But uh, I think it happened the seventh or seventh or eighth inning. And at that point, we were all looking at each other like, oh my God, like we're going to Omaha. Like we were an underdog there and just to be there with guys like John Jay and Chris Perez and, you know, Jamal Weeks, Eddie Rodriguez, Yonder Alonzo, a lot of great players who went on to have very successful major league careers. It was a really cool moment to look back on and be part of. That trot around the base paths yep. on the road at a super regional to essentially go to the college world series. Were you able to take it in? You know, I felt like I was floating. I What I do remember vividly was coming around third base and looking at Gino and just, so excited i'm like i'm like is that clutch? i kept saying to him is that clutch is that clutch <laughs> and we always talked about like you know clutch clutch plays clutch uh you know clutch hits and he was just as fired up as me there was definitely some curse words involved and i just remember hitting his hand him hit mine and seeing everybody waiting for me at home plate and then gm who's still currently the equipment manager there at um giving me this big kiss on the cheek and it got captured on on espn and everything i never let him live that one down it was a really cool moment. I was floating around the bases like, wow. I remember having my hand up. I have a picture with my hand up running around the bases and it was awesome, man. It was a great, probably one of my best college moments for sure. That's a great memento, right? To have that captured in a photo that you can keep with you the rest of your life. Oh yeah. I mean, you, you know, the great part about that also is people don't know, but I played in pro ball. I played with Chris Coughlin, who was the third baseman for Old Miss in that game. I played against Lance Lynn, who I hit a home run earlier in that game, but I faced him plenty of times in the big leagues. And John Jay played with him as a teammate in the, in the Cardinals. So there was a lot of times during, you know, our years in pro ball that we would reminisce on those games and, you know, getting the perspective of the visiting player or the, the losing, you know, the losing opponent. What was their perspective? <laughs> what is your perspective other than that sucked? <laughs> These guys thought there was no doubt that they were winning the series. Like we thought we were the better team. That was our year, the year before that they were upset against Texas, but they never thought for a second they were losing that series, especially since they won the first game. You know, we lost the very first game in that Super Regionals, came back and won the next two. So when that happened, they were just like, it was like ripping their heart out. And, you know, as a competitive athlete, you love to hear that. I bet you do. It's, it's a little disheartening, but uh, it's definitely lingered. We've had conversations about that, you know, ever since it happened. We've had a lot of football players or coaches on this podcast, and they always talk about competition at Green Tree, the football practice field, and just doing some reading, getting ready for this. You talked about the competition at Mark Light, 
you know, and, and Yonder Alonso has been on this podcast and he mentioned the very same thing. So can you talk about, especially with some of the names you just mentioned, what the competition was like at Mark Light and how it made you guys better? People have to understand, I feel like the, the types of players that we were when we were there was a bunch of like hungry dogs, like, and we were super competitive, not only with other teams, but with each other. So inner squads, you know, when we knew who was pitching that day, we would talk a lot of crap to, to each other during our times in school with each other and in classes and stuff. And it brought out the best of, in us. And it also brought out the worst. And it made us, you know, like super just mentally tough guys. And all we want to do is kick each other's and beat up on our own teammates. But I'm sure Yonder probably touched on it in the same light is, you know, we felt like the best competition we were going to face that whole entire week was the inner squads we had with each other whether it be facing guys like Chris Perez or Cesar Carrillo or Scott Maine, you know, there was always a guy out there that we knew was going to go on and play pro ball. So you knew you were getting the best. It, the games were competitive. They were heated. You know, whenever you make a, a bad play, the other guys would let you know when the pitcher would strike you out, he'd let you know when the hitters would hit home runs, they'd pimp them. Like we really were an aggressive bunch of guys looking back on it, you didn't realize the talent that we had because you take it for granted when you're in college, but then everybody went on after that. And I think eight guys from that team played in the big leagues, which is like unheard of. And those were some of the toughest practices mentally and physically that I've ever endured. And I think a lot of it, I talk to the young guys now at UM, especially, you know, I speak with Ben Wanger is Gino did a great job of making us mentally tough. And I think the program installed that, instilled that in us. And I think that's what helped us, you know, in pro ball to be able to to weather the storm of all the ups and downs that you go through when you you know you play in professional baseball yonder said the games were easier because of practice would you agree yeah no doubt i mean the practices were tough they were like i said physically and mentally stressful we were hungry and we were competitive i'm not to say that our team now is not like that i'm not around them every day to, to really get a gauge on what the guys were like but man we played with guys that would bury you out there if they had the opportunity. And I think that is what made us be super, super successful and also give us that stereotype of being, you know, arrogant and, and, you know, the you invented swagger and sometimes definitely times with cocky and maybe a little overboard, but that was our edge. A lot of the guys there going into pro ball that helped us, you know, we believed in ourselves and it, and it all stemmed from the practices that we, and the stuff we endured at UM. So bury you as in like in the game or bury you, you know, in the clubhouse or both. Barry, like if you're sliding, if you're, they're trying to double play, we're sliding in hard. It didn't matter if you were on our team. Like we were playing the game hard out there and we wanted them, everybody to know and feel each one of our presence when we're out there. And mind you, everywhere you looked, there was great players. You had Ryan Braun out there. You had, you know, John Jay, like I said, all these guys that played long time, Gabby Sanchez, it's a long list of great players and we were playing hard and it was a lot of fun, but they were definitely, you'd go home and you'd be wiped out. <laughs> And you also wanted to have a couple friends outside of baseball that you didn't have to hang out with because it was a lot. So you mentioned Ryan Braun. I'm just going to throw this out there. Where would he rank in terms of best players you played with college or pro? Man, you know, Ryan was the first player that I saw, you know, before getting a pro ball where I was like, wow, this guy's just superior to everybody else. You know, like watching him hit, it just seemed so easy. As a college player, I think he was the best I've ever been around and seen. I mean, not just the way he played, but like Ryan was extremely confident and cocky in his own beliefs. Like he would tell you guys, you know, I'm gonna hit two home runs today. And we're all like, yeah, right, no way. And then before you know it, he'd pop one in the first inning and you're like, this guy's gonna hit another one at the end of the day. And, and before you know, it, he's got two home runs and it's like, you know, I told you so. So yeah, I'd say he's at the very top of uh, the food chain when it comes to playing with, you know, college guys and I mean even in pro ball he won an MVP he was an, he's an amazing player and we all knew it when we were in college playing with him you mentioned uh, I think the 06 team had eight guys that went to the bigs the 05 team lost in the super regionals I think in your two years the numbers is like 10 guys that might have gone to the big leagues overall regardless it's an absurd amount of guys that, that went to the big leagues that 05 team though can you um can you share with us, you shared this story, I think, with the people at UM, but you lose the Super Regional, Jim Morris gets on the bus, and what does he say to you? Because apparently it was something that stuck with you for a while. Yeah, so, you know, we all knew, you know, grew up, we all were Miami Hurricane fans. We knew that, you know, Omaha's the goal every single year. Every time practice ends, it's one, two, three, Omaha. It was, everything was based about getting to the College World Series and at that point having a chance to win a national championship. We knew the team we had in 05 was really really good we were super talented we had one of the best pitchers in the country we had the best player in the country and 
start the year, we were ranked second. We get super regionals and we kind of had a little funk at the end of the year where, where we weren't hosting like we usually do. We hosted regionals, but we went on the road to Nebraska. You know, we felt confident about our team. We lost to a good team in Nebraska who had Jabba Chamberlain and Alex Gordon, who I played together as a teammate. We spoke about this series at length when we were together in Kansas City. But I'll never forget, and I don't want to put Jim Morris on blast because I think he's great. He's a Hall of Fame guy, great coach. I love Jim Morris. I love three. He's an amazing person. But as soon as we got on the bus after we just got eliminated, he stood right up and said, I also want you all to know that this is the most disappointing team in the University of Miami's history. We've completely underachieved, and I'm just super disappointed. The cut's still fresh. It just The game just ended. We're literally in the team bus driving back to the hotel. And that's when you knew as a player, like playing in super regionals, wasn't it, you know, as you know, you go to other programs, they just want to get into the tournament. It was Omaha bust. And he let us know how disappointed he was. And it made me sit back and think, and like, wow, man, like he wasn't going to say anything about, you know, I'm proud of the way we fought or proud of, you know, all the things we accomplished during the season. It was just straight to this point. This, this was the most disappointing team I've had in university of Miami. And looking back on it, from that team, like you mentioned, all the guys that were on it, it was disappointing. There's no doubt in my mind, looking back, that we should have won a national championship with that team. And we underachieved. And that sticks out to this day. How good were you? Like, if you just put, if you went player for player, talent for talent, how good was that team? I felt like that team, if we played, stayed, stuck together and played pro ball together, that that team eventually becomes a playoff team in Major League Baseball. So that's pretty good. There was talent everywhere. You have an MVP at third base. You had a shortstop who got drafted. He was a great defensive player in Roger Tomas. Um, at second base was Paco Figueroa, who is an amazing, you know, four-year run at, at Miami. I played first. Eddie Rodriguez was catching, who played in the big leagues. John Jay was playing left field, um, who long 10-year career in the big leagues. In center field, we had Danny Figueroa, who played pro ball, was a Team USA outfielder, who was, you know, hurt by injuries. Right field, I'm drawing a blank who is out there. But it was probably somebody who raked. Oh, Brendan Caton, who played in the, I think, I don't know if he played in the big leagues or not, but he played with Braun in the Brewers organization, hit like 30, 40 home runs in the minor leagues in the season. I mean, we had good players. And when 06 came and those freshmen came in with that 06 class, we were really, really, I mean, even deeper. It's like that period will be forever legendary, I think, in the University of Miami. How laser focused were you guys in 06? It's, it's funny because at that point we lost, you know, a lot of our best players. We lost Caesar, who was an amazing pitcher in the first round. We lost Braun. We lost Gabby. So now we bring in these young freshmen who were, you know, heavily recruited guys like Yonder and Jamile Weeks and uh, Blake Ticotti and Dennis Rabin, who were all big time recruits. And we just didn't know what we were getting. So I think that the ceiling wasn't as high like it was the year before. But we kind of, in a sense, maybe have underachieved at the end by, you know, going on the road for regionals and winning against Nebraska in Nebraska, where we just lost the year before. Then we won on the road to Ole Miss and, and, we, and we won there. We win the very first game in Omaha that year against Oregon State, who was the actual eventual winner. And it's here's another Jim Morris story. It's we win big. I don't remember the score, but we, run, we won pretty big. And Jim Morris comes in the clubhouse after the game, addresses the team and says, guys, we really have a chance to win this. And I'm thinking in my, in my head, I'm looking at John Jay. I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're here, we're kicking ass and we have a squad. And I think that deep down inside coach Morris three, I don't think he really knew how good we were. And it's easy, you know, looking back now and realize how great those teams were because of all the guys that went on and had so much success playing at the next level. You mentioned that everyone like wanted like yonder. I mean, I think, I think he said the story, you know, he came over from Cuba. I'm not sure he knew much about what Miami baseball was, but I think once he went to the park for the first time, he was like, I want to be a cane. Uh, you grew up in Boca. Did you want to be a cane? Yeah, we always, my parents were humongous University of Miami fans. They would go and take me down to the Orange Bowl for football games. My mom and dad used to go to football games on their own together. Um, I went to Jim Morris's uh, baseball camp. I remember vividly watching Pat Burrow play and hitting home runs where the ball would disappear. He'd hit them so far. Because that's when they were using those aluminum bats for that were literally dangerous. So it was never a question of where I wanted to play is, am I going to be good enough that they're going to want me? You went to UNC Greensboro to start. Was it ever a dance with Miami prior to going to college? Or was it just, were you not there yet coming out of high school? I personally think looking back, I was ready to go there. I don't think at that point, Miami really recruited too far north of Miami-Dade County. <laughs> I was all state with Roger Tomas, who was the shortstop. Like I had great years in high school. 
Um, I ended up going to a division one program where one of my, more my best friend was going at the same time. So it was cool. And I was looking forward to that, but what really helped me, you know, get back to UM was, you know, people don't talk about it. I don't know if Yonder mentioned it, but we had a summer ball team called the Florida bombers that was based out of Miami where it was literally a feeder program for the university of Miami. You know, Yonder was on the team. Jay was on the team. Eddie Rodriguez was on the team. Chris Perez was on the team. Uh, Scott Main was on the team. All these guys were going from high school to their freshman year. They were going to UM and I was going to Greensboro, but we we're all teammates together. So I knew all these guys and I had a great freshman year and I wanted to transfer. And as soon as, you know, it got out where it was out that I wanted to transfer out of there, university of Miami, you know, found a way to get in contact with me. And it was a no brainer at that point. I wanted to play with my friends and be at the U. Did you walk on or were you on scholarship? And I know with baseball players in Miami, it's never a full ride the way the scholarship business works. So a decent amount of money regardless was coming out of your pocket. Yeah, I mean, I, I had to pay off my student loan. So when I transferred over there, they didn't have any money for the first semester to give me. They just gave me, I think they gave me textbooks or whatever, looking back at it, which is really nothing. We both know that. Plus, at least when I was in college, you, you get the syllabus, you're like 15 books. Well, maybe I'll buy seven. I'm not reading all these, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was just on, I was just on books the first semester. And then, you know, he wanted to get a feel for if I was ready to handle that level. In my mind, there was no doubt. And I think that, you know, for them, if they can get me for free, they're going to. Um, so the first year, like we, my parents had to pay. And the second year after I was, you know, going to my junior, he gave me a scholarship, you know, called me in say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to give you this percentage. I forgot it was like 20% or 25%, but it wasn't a lot. Like you said, there's only like 11 something scholarships. Most every player is paying something in some way, shape or form. Correct. Yeah. You know, we all had, I had Florida prepaid. So I'd helped. We had financial aid. I would find it hard to believe that somebody there was not paying a single dollar to go because it's a very expensive university. The reason why I bring that up is because I, I it, like I said, in, in getting ready for this, I think you'd said somewhere that somewhere like you were making an investment in yourself, but quite literally almost every baseball player that goes is invest literally investing into their career or their future. There's no doubt. I mean, I, my parents had student loans and they're working people. So as soon as I got a call up to the big leagues, my mom's like, Hey, pay them off. <laughs> you're paying off these loans. And I took, and I assumed that, and I paid that off, but it was like 40, $50,000. It wasn't, you know, it's not cheap. College wasn't cheap. And I still, and I'm it's funny. I'm still don't have a degree, but I'm online taking uh, classes at the university of Miami right now. So uh, I'm only a few away from graduating, but uh, it's, it's not cheap. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that sacrificed for me to go there. My parents mostly and, uh, and my family. So it's, you know, I'm forever grateful for what they did. I don't know if this was real or not. Did your mom like assist as your hitting coach growing up? I, I read that nugget somewhere. Is that real? Or is that like a, some fib that made its way into like Wikipedia? <laughs> that is an urban legend that made its way onto Wikipedia. My mom knows a ton about baseball. She knows a ton about hitting. She watches, she reads, she's very observant. She's been around me when I practice. So yes, to some degree, does she know what she's talking about? Yes. Was she my hitting coach? That's a stretch. But she is a person that after a bad game will let you know how bad you were. And after a good game, she'll let you, she'll let you know, you know, like it was impressive to watch. She's, a, she is my strongest critic. There's no doubt about it. She is somebody who will push you um, when you don't want to be pushed. And a lot of, you know, probably a lot of success I had is because I had a person like that, a parent like that, who is, you know, constantly demanding more, demanding better, constantly seeking perfection. My dad wasn't as heavily involved in my baseball like my mom was. So there's some merit to it. Is she my hitting coach? No. Did you ever ask like, mom, why did you, why do you care so much about hitting or why'd you read so much about hitting or why were you so invested in not me, obviously she's your mom, but like invested in that side of the, of the game. She loves baseball. She's, I mean, she'll watch the game and she knows what she's talking about, which is the worst thing for a parent <laughs> to know what they're talking about. And like, you know, tell you like, you know, Danny, two strikes, you should, maybe choke up and think right field and let the ball get deep, which is like the perfect approach and the textbook approach for, you know, falling behind an account, but not a, nobody wants to hear that, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, playing baseball from their parent, they want that loving, nurturing person. She really wasn't that all the time. You don't want Jim Morris on the bus after Nebraska. You want, Hey, we're proud. I'm proud of you, son. You did great. No problem. Pick me up a little bit, but my mom's tough. Even when I was in the big leagues, I would go through stretches where you're hitless, 0 for 10, 0 for 12. All these guys have done it. And she'll fire off a text message to you in the middle of the game. Those are bats make me want to throw up. <laughs> and I'm in the big leagues. This is, and I'm not one year in. I'm six, seven, eight years in, and she's doing that. So 
it was it's uh she's definitely a motivating person in her own little way i got you i got you so there's the dog maybe the do i think the dog agrees the dog is the dog agrees right g hi hurricane fans joe zagaki here for ups your customers want more from your business you've got to make more happen whether they're in miami or on the other side of the world globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. After your junior year, you decided to go pro. Was there any thought of coming back to school and re-entering the draft after your senior year? At first, I told the scout that I'm definitely going back to college. I'm not... Um... <laughs> signing they they offered me at the time i think five grand or ten grand and i was like after you got drafted after i got drafted and I, at this point gino lined me up to play with the team in cape cod i was playing for the orleans cardinals so i told him you know respectfully like that money's not going to get me to leave i'll be you know the big man on campus and go back for my senior year of, of college and you know lead a great team that we already have hopefully back to omaha and hopefully win a national championship so they said, look, well, let's see you play out in the Cape League and monitor you. And I went out to the Cape League, and I think I hit in a home run in my first three or four games each game. And every time I did that, they would call, you know, the person who was representing me at the time and say, you know, we'll offer him 25 grand. We'll offer him 40 grand. We'll offer him 60 grand. And before you know it, they offered me $75,000, which we all knew at that point, I don't think, you know, as a, as a senior sign, I'm going to be able to top that. So my parents were like, look, if you want to play pro ball, I think this is the time to do it. So I left Cape Cod. I told more, I called, you know, Morris. I told him my decision. He was a little disappointed in me. He told me that, you know, not many guys drafted that late, get the opportunity to get up to the big leagues. It's going to be an uphill battle for me. And, and he's right. You know, he was giving me honest advice, but that kind of fueled me a little bit. That's just how I was. And I took that and, you know, there was a lot of, I'm going to prove a lot of people wrong. And that's how I entered pro ball. You're driven at that point. Miami didn't want me at first. Chip on my shoulder. Me and Gino bumped heads because of that early on in my career in Miami because I felt like, you know, he should have taken the trip up to Palm Beach and watched me play. Everybody knew who I was. I was on top of the leaderboard in the state and hitting and all this stuff. He knew who I was, and I let him know that. And we bumped heads, and I always felt like I was slighted because he didn't recruit me. And that's just the truth. So that bothered me at UM. So now I'm going to show those guys that I'm going to be your cleanup hitter. I'll be one of your best players, which I was. And now Morris tells me, hey, it's going to be an uphill climb. And I was upset to be drafted in the 19th round. Nobody wants to be drafted late. Everybody wants to be a first rounder. But the truth is not everybody can. So now I head into pro ball with this chip on my shoulder and a lot of F you in me, right? Let's go. I'm going to show people who I am and what I can do. And that's how I entered pro ball. And I went in there with our third round pick at the time, who was also a third baseman playing behind him. So boom, you put me in the mix with the guy who played division two and you have me who's coming fresh from the university of Miami, arrogant kid, had a lot of success, went fresh from the university of Miami in the college world series. And I'm watching this guy play ahead of me. And I'm thinking the whole time I'm better this, than this guy. And I let them know that <laughs> they gave me a reputation of being arrogant. And that's just how I came into pro ball with, with arrogance and a huge chip on my shoulder. You see that that's fueling you. That's driving you. You're not alone as an athlete, right? A lot of that. Every athlete has that. Right. And some of that is why they are successful or a lot of that is why they're successful. Right. Which I think is what differentiates athletes from the rest of us is that they are driven beyond measure that people can even comprehend. But as you're making your way through the minors, does it, does the fuel ever run out or is it just forcing you through the organizations you're with? No, I was just, I'm super, super competitive. So Every level I'm at, I'm looking at all the other third basemen, not just on my team, because I didn't really, I knew I was the best player on my team in the minor leagues on all the teams I played on. I was looking around the league, like comparing myself to all the other top prospects. And, you know, I'd see them in person and play against them and I would outperform them. I'm, you know, I'm seeing these guys first round, second round. And it's just like, I knew like if I kept working and kept going in the same level I was, and I was making the all-star team every year in the minor leagues, that I was going to get my chance. And you know, when you're drafted late, you don't have the same, you know, the same long leash as a guy drafted in the first round. You know, you slip up one time, they'll release you. I saw it. I saw it happen in front of me all the time. So I continue to perform. The thought in my head went from, do I belong to when am I getting up there? 
You know, you feel your way out because it's, it's a huge pool of players. And it's not just local guys. It's guys from all over the world, from the Dominican, from Japan. Like you're playing against the best in the world that want 30 jobs. I was a third baseman. There's only 30 teams. There's 30 jobs. So it, that definitely fuels you. And there was never doubt. No, I never doubted it. It was, it was always like, it's going to happen. You know, I just was super competitive. I knew that I was, I was good enough just by seeing it and being around it. Like the play, you can't fool the players. They know who can play and who can't right away when you're on a field and just coming from a program from like the university of Miami and being around all these other guys and seeing guys that weren't nearly as, as talented or as mentally tough or as savage when you're out there playing. Like I just felt like I was going to get up there. It's just a matter of when. Before we get into that moment, when you get the call, can you describe the life of a minor leaguer? It's a grinder lifestyle. I, you know, um, I go from playing in the college world series where you're getting police escorts and, you know, going on two buses and we're on top of the world and ESPN games to now signing this contract from out of Cape Cod and going to Elizabeth in Tennessee, living in a trailer with a host mom who had one bedroom and her daughter who had the other bedroom. I'm sleeping on an air mattress in the, in the living room on another air mattress by the front door is the catcher from the university of Nebraska named Jeff Christie. And then sleeping in this kind of den area in one bed or two Dominicans sharing a bed. <laughs> so there's four players in a two bedroom house and both the rooms are taken in the trailer making $390 every two weeks. And we're playing every single day, you know, night games. So we get to the field at one, we leave at 11 every single day. And we're making 350 bucks every two weeks. And we thought it was the coolest job in the world. All we got to do is play baseball all the time. That's awesome. That's right. We're eating at, Culver's um, we're going the mall is considered Walmart in some of these places it's it's a grind and looking back it was some of the best times ever because playing in the minor leagues those are your friends you guys do everything together when you get to the big leagues they're you know they're co-workers everybody has their own separate life they come to the field they come kick ass and then they go and do their own thing they have their families and their own little businesses on the side so it's more of a bonding thing in the minor leagues but it's, it's a grinder lifestyle. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for people who aren't motivated because there's no lifestyle being a career minor leaguer. And at every level of the minor leagues, it's the same or does it get a little bit better as you move up? I mean, the pay still stinks. You know, like <laughs> you make 800 bucks every two weeks, which isn't, you know, nobody's getting rich like that. Now you get maybe the bus rides a little better. You're going into better towns. Now you're playing instead of Elizabeth in Tennessee, AAA is Rochester, New York, which isn't great, but you're going to like Indianapolis and Louisville, Columbus, Ohio, which are great towns in this country. So yeah, I guess it progresses. The, the cities and the stadiums get better. The fan bases are, are a little bit more heavily involved. And uh, to that degree, it's better. But it's, it's the minor leagues is still, you know, it's the minor leagues. There's no, it's the reason why it's called the Bushes. So you finally get the call. And what's that moment like? It's so crazy because it seems like every step of the way you're getting chopped down. When I got called up, 2010, Tom Nieto is the manager at AAA. He told me, pack light. You're only going for a few days. Michael Kadar is going on the bereavement list. That's how he told me I was going up. So that's the third time you've sort of been slighted. Yeah. So I was like, okay, whatever. I packed only a few things. Well, I ended up being third rookie of the year and didn't come back down for two and a half years later. You know, I, I ended up not performing, but it was two and a half years later at this point. So that just bothered me for him to tell me that he, he couldn't be happy for me to say, Hey, Danny, you worked your whole life to get to this point. You know, congratulations. You deserve it. You've played well, you've kicked, you've done everything we've, we've asked you to do as an organization. It was, Hey man, congratulations. You're going to the big leagues pack light. You're not going to be there long. You're only there for a few days. That's what he said to me. And I took that personally. And when I got the spring training the next year, I made sure I let him know. And he ended up getting fired after that year. But I mean, I didn't like that. I told him you should never tell a player that like that, you know, it's looking back on it. You're that's a time of their life. That's a moment in their life. They'll never forget. And it should be nothing but like motivation and pump them up and how great they have been. Instead, you told me that my stay is only going to be a few days. And that fueled me. Third in the rookie of the year voting is pretty good, my friend. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was a surreal run. I mean, I played great. Our team played great. We were the best team in the American league. Um, we hosted, uh, we opened up the division series against the Yankees. Here's Derek Jeter's leading off. Now I'm like, wow, I'm playing against the guys that I admired and looked up to. A-Rod at third, Jeter, Cano, Posada behind the plate. It was the Yankees. It was the real New York Yankees. And it was, uh, Matsui was a DH. It was really, really cool. 
you get to the big leagues and you've got, have you said, a lot of confidence, a lot of maybe a little arrogance. You believe in yourself. Now you're playing with the best players in the world. Danny Valencia still thinks he belongs. Now, at first, I'm kind of like tiptoeing around the clubhouse. You know, I'm seeing guys like Maurer and Morneau, and I'm getting my hits in the games. But he's got me playing sporadically when he felt like the, the matchup may be favorable. But he was playing me. Like, National League, I didn't play in interleague games. But it gets to a point like mid-July where he throws me out there for a stretch of games. I get three hits against Baltimore. From there, he's like, you know what? I'll play the hot hand. We're going to go to Kansas City. I get four hits the first night and hit my first grand slam off Zach Granke. I get three hits the day after that, and I get another four hits the day after that. And now I think I'm starting off 40 for my first 100 in the big leagues. And on the scoreboard, it says I'm hitting 400. So I hit a double and I'm running around the bases and I'm saying to myself inside, Danny, you're the best player in the game. I'm better than Albert Pujols. At this time. <laughs> That's how I was thinking, you know, like it just never crossed my mind. I'm like, you know, I'm doing it now against the best players. Like I belong. This is where I'm supposed to be. I don't know how people will, re will receive that when they hear it, but you have to think that way. If there's a moment, there comes a moment in every single player who's up in the big leagues where they have a little bit of success and that lets them believe wholeheartedly that they believe there. None of that false confidence or that false sense of security that you, you got it. You need to do something up there to make you deep down inside believe I belong. And that was my moment when I went for this stretch of however many hits. And it was like 14 for like 16 or something like that. It was something stupid, but a lot of, you know, there's luck involved, but that made me feel like I belong there. The game will humble you too, right? Yeah. You fast forward to 2012 and I start out the gate terrible. And you get sent down you get called in the office to get that weird tap on your shoulder, say, Guardy wants to see you. And I knew, I just knew it was that time. And he told me, hey, man, we want you to clear your head, go down to AAA. You're not yourself. You're not swinging the bat the way we need you to. And that's going from the top of the mountain back to the bottom. And that's a tough, tough, you know, place to be. And a lot of times players get down and they never get back up. And it was a huge adjustment for me at first. I felt like I let down people, the team, my family, and I was just depressed and I didn't play well. And the season ended. I got called back up to the big leagues. I got traded. I was pretty much given away to the Boston Red Sox. It went from being the top, from being 40 for 100, looking up at the scoreboard saying I'm the best player in the game, saying I'll never know if I'll get back up there. And going into the off season for you know, the beginning of 13, 12 was my bad year. Now here I am, fast forward to 13. I, I had to you know, look myself in the mirror and say, you have to work hard. And I never not worked hard, but like you really got to make you know, serious changes to your game and your swing for you to be able to have success up there. I'm grateful for the time that I spent with the Baltimore Orioles um, and the hitting coaches they had there. I think it was a great move for my career to get out of Minnesota. And I don't want to say they were small-minded with the way they thought about hitting in Minnesota, but I felt like they kind of, made everybody and they molded everybody to be Joe Maurer. And yes, he's a great hitter, but he also doesn't hit for power. And, you know, I was playing a position where they wanted you to hit for power. And I think getting into a place like the Orioles who wanted to hit home runs and didn't care about striking out was good for me. And it helped me get my feet back. And, you know, I got back up in the big leagues in 13 and then I never came back down after that. You might've just answered the question, but I'm always curious about this kind of stuff at, at that level, which is sort of, I'm curious about coaches or managers and organizations, right? Just how they operate, how they run, what guys kind of have a good feel for their clubhouse and their people. So you played for, I think it's seven teams. What organization did you like the most and why? And did you just give away the answer? Well, I like, I loved playing for, for Baltimore, but you know what, looking back, I love, I mean, I love my time in all the locations. I wouldn't take it back. I wouldn't take it, you know, I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, I got to live in a lot of different places. I think if I had to pick a place where I would want to like play, my whole career, it's tough. I really enjoyed playing in Oakland. I love the lifestyle, living in the Bay Area, the food, Napa being close by. The stadium stunk, but I loved the team. I loved Bob Melvin. Um, I thought Billy Bean was extremely talented general manager and president of an organization. That would be at the top. I think Toronto's not too far behind. The city itself is amazing. Baltimore is right there with it, being an amazing place. And just... A different mindset was what I needed at that moment. So Baltimore will be forever, you know, in my heart. My son was also born there. Billy Bean, I don't, I don't know the timeline on his, you know, his imprint on baseball, but were you sort of aware of how he was dissecting the game analytically and, and maybe where you even fit in that? Yeah, you know, it's first when you come, you, you come over to in a trade to, to Oakland, you're like, you don't even think about the manager. You think about like Moneyball and how Billy Bean and stuff and you want to know what he's like. And Brad Pitt played him in a movie. Like 
I never seen him in person. Is he really that good looking? <laughs> all, all these, you know, different thoughts going in your head. And yeah, so it was um it was nice meeting him. And he was he'd be the first guy there to dap you up once you come off the field after a game after you've won and be like, hey, great game, way to play today. And I thought that was really unique. I never ever saw a general manager, president of an organization be that involved and around the team. They're never really around. They're always up in the you know press box or whatever, doing you know different things, making moves from above. And he was that guy that you saw consistently, like you know every day in the weight room. He'd be on the treadmill. He'll be talking baseball with you. He loves soccer, and uh, and he's got a little arrogance to him that you like. And I just thought that like he was like a normal guy, and he was funny, and I, I really appreciated the conversation I had with Billy. Um, and Bob Melvin and just the, the Oakland A's itself. It's, it's a great organization. Again, I'm always curious, organizational, you know, productivity function, et cetera, coaches and how they, how they're able to really just get the most out of their guys. So who was a manager? They were like, man, he just, he was really good at what he did. Oh man, Bob Melvin. He's right there at the top. He was really cool. He would talk to you like with respect and then, then really shoot you straight. And he'd also tell you his hands are tied because a lot of times the lineup's coming from above, but he was a real good, nice person to speak with. John Gibbons in Toronto was also a real cool guy. Hey, you win, you lose, Danny. It's, it is what it is. It's don't get too down on yourself. Um, don't get too high on yourself. Buck Showalter is another one. He, I remember him telling me, you're never as good as you think, and you're never as bad as you think. And that stuck with me for a very, very long time. I used to love going to the field early and picking Buck's head and just talking like old school baseball. And, you know, he managed those Yankee teams. And it's he always had these cool, like, Mickey Mantle stories and the Roger Maris stories. And like, you know, as a kid who like, you know, baseball is everything. Like I, I love the history of the game. So he was cool to speak to you about things like that. And then there's some managers that you avoid, you know, Bobby Valentine, he kept the, clo- the door closed. It was like a chore to talk to him. He wasn't very like approachable and he wasn't a fan of me probably. He probably didn't even know who I was. Like he was in his own world. And it's like, you know, you have managers like that. And then, you know, I played some good managers like I was very blessed to play with the managers I did. I had great managers the whole way, some better than others, but I wouldn't change it for anything. I mean, Ron Garden hire was great. Ned Yost won a World Series at Kansas City. So um, there's a lot of good guys uh, along the way. All right, so let's talk about what you're doing now. You're going to the Olympics for Team Israel, which I think makes the story even cooler. Let's just get this right. The Israeli Baseball Association approached you well before any of this ever happened, correct? Yeah, they've been trying to get me to play in the World Baseball Classic teams for some years, you know, for the qualifiers that took place in 12, even in 2017. And I was just never able to do it just because of my commitment with Major League Baseball and the club that I was with. Um, I remember in 17 that they were trying to get me, uh, Jerry Weinstein, who was the manager of that staff, like, look, Danny, we'd, we'd love to have you. What can you do? And I was like, you know, I'm new to a team in Seattle. They're paying me good bit of money and I don't want to risk getting hurt and they'd rather me you know gel with the team meet the guys build bonds with my other teammates and I you know I respectfully declined that opportunity to play in 2017 looking back I regret it but at the time I had to do it and it was always in the works I always had conversation with Peter Kurz who's the president and general manager of our team now so I kept in contact with them throughout the you know throughout their throughout years in 2019 I wasn't playing and I was in shape because I was training as if I was going to get a job to at least go into a spring training in 2019 that didn't come to fruition so he reached out to me and I said look I'm in pretty good shape he's I said I think I can hold my own and I decided to go out there make Aliyah which you know become a resident or a citizen of Israel which I did and from there we went to a tournament in Germany to uh, be able to even go and play in the Olympic qualifier and really the rest is history. We ended up winning the qualifier, but there was a lot of steps to the process. When they first approached you, going back to 2012, were you even aware that Israel had a baseball team that could play in the Olympics? Well, it wasn't even about playing in the Olympics at that point. It was just oh, called well, into the World Baseball Classic. World Baseball Classic. I'm sorry, you're right. So so I asked, were you aware that they even had organ, you know, they had a professional organized, you know, organization? Not really. Just all I knew was, you know, I kind of kept tabs on who the other Jewish baseball players were, just like any other Jewish, you know, player does. Oh, you know, it's funny. I was, I was like, ah, I was, I was like, ah, don't ask him that. That's probably not it. That probably doesn't happen, but it happens. Absolutely. It happens because there's not a lot of us. So it's kind of like our little way of like, you know, talking with each other and like, Ian Kimsler's on our team now, but this is a guy that I admired playing against for years. I love the way he played. And it was always like, Hey man, like 
how Jewish are you? You know, like, what do you do? Like, you're, you're really Jewish. She's like, yeah, we would talk. And I thought that's kind of how, that's kind of how we want to establish like a little. I'm Jewish. So we can kind of clarify what, right. There. So like, do you go to, do you go to Shabbat services? Do you celebrate the high holidays? Do you, do you fast on Passover? Like there's a couple of benchmarks that sort of define, you know, maybe how, how Jewish or religious you are. Did you have a bar mitzvah? Like, are you, are you, are you really a member of our tribe? <laughs> like that. And right, so how many Jewish baseball guys were there when you were playing? There was a handful, you know, uh, like Kinsler was one. Um, Jason Marquis was another. Sam Fold was one. That's really off the top of my head that I could really think of. Long there's, list. There's not, long yeah, there's not many. Doc Peterson's another one. And, and Braun, I knew Braun in Miami was, you know, Braun's a Jewish last name. And, and his dad's Israeli. But he wasn't raised in a Jewish household. His dad's Jewish, but his mom, they had both in the house, but his mom's not Jewish, so. Yeah, I, I knew of some, but it's a small group and there's never on Sundays, they always have chapel for the players. There was never anything. There was never like they brought in like some type of rabbi and have like a mini synagogue service or anything like that. So we always would talk with each other and keep in contact, but it's, it's, it's a unique thing. It's definitely cool. I think you're going to appreciate this question. And I can ask you this because we are, we, we are both raised Jewish. This is another defining mark of, your, uh, of someone's Judaism. Do you eat gefilte fish? I don't like it. Uh, I love ball soup. Well, who doesn't? Come on. Right? If you were going to say yes to the gefilte fish, I was going to say for Passover, horseradish, pink or white? Pink. Uh, so we're, we're slightly at odds with our diet. So you're, yeah, right. I just never got into that. Like, look, I love brisket. Do you like brisket? Of course. Right? So brisket for Passover. Matzah? Are you like, were you, were you down matzah like during Passover? Yeah, I'll have, you know, throw a little butter on there. All right. That's the extent of what you're going to do. Yeah, I mean, I like matzo ball soup. Gefilte fish really isn't my thing. We're heavy brisket family. My mom would cook, is definitely cooking a brisket for Passover. I mean, you're all in on potato pancakes, right? 100%. Thank God. My favorite breakfast spot up here is called 2J's. And yeah, have you been? They do breakfasts and they always include two uh, potato can pancakes. And they're really, with, with a little sour cream and applesauce, they're delicious. All right, so how about bagels? Right, like, don't tell me you like plain, like plain bagels is not your thing, is it? No, pumpernickel. Oh, pumpernickel. And a good bialy. Okay. Awesome. All right. So like, there's a small, as you said, a small percentage of Jewish baseball players, probably a smaller percentage of people that appreciate whatever we just discussed for the last two minutes. Right. Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Last thing. Um, any good embarrassing moments from your bar mitzvah? You know, they just, my mom, I'm renting this house now while I'm doing it in a renovation, but my parents, the house I grew up in is literally across the street. So when I was there the other day, they had my bar mitzvah video on. Yes. Queued up, queued up. And I had like the sniffles at the time, but I'm over there and, you know, like I was a boy, but still the man at 13. So of course it was, you were. <laughs> it was uh, man, it was like, I was an alto. I had a very high pitched voice looking back Put at in. me. Put in. Hello. <laughs> so, time for my candle lighting. I know. It's like, Danny, you gonna light the candles out? <laughs> um so let's get back to the let's get back to the, the the team israel and everything like that you mentioned that um returning home aliyah you actually have to become a citizen of israel yeah you have to be a passport holder to be able to play in the olympics and play in the qualifiers and stuff so i went you know the state like there's a rule of israel all jews are welcome so if you're a jew um your mom's jewish i had to provide all this documentation like it's not a really easy process like you you get seriously heavily vetted for it um, you have to have a letter written by a rabbi. You have to do an FBI background report. I mean, they don't mess around when it comes to security in Israel. They are, they are at the very top. The U S is not on that type of level of security. Sorry. These guys lead the world in that stuff. And it's really, really impressive. Have you ever been? I have not. You have to go. It's a very, very impressive place. How much time have you spent in Israel now that you've done this? I've done a couple trips out there. The first time I went for 12 days, the second time I was out there for 10 days, Pretty sure um, when we come back with our gold medals, we're probably going to do a little tour for another few more days. That's that swaggy Miami confidence right there. You got to think like that. What, am I going out there thinking I'm losing? Otherwise, I'm not going. No way, dude. Of course, you're bringing back the gold. Are you kidding me? So was there, um, in all seriousness, I mean, I've heard from, you know, from people that have been this with an overwhelming emotional and spiritual, like there are multiple moments and places and things. So did you have any or multiple of those being there? The one that really sticks out the most to me is we went on a tour of Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum there. And they have all the authentic artifacts from the Holocaust. They have the real boots that the people wore. 
they have live footage. And that to me, there's no way you can make it through. If you have a heart, there's no way you can make it through from the beginning to the end because they put you on these, these headsets while you go through and not be overcome with emotion. I mean, teary-eyed, goosebumps. It's to see these videos of these kids. And I'm looking at my son who's three years old and these three, four, five-year-old kids with smiles on their face, absolutely skin on bone with smiles being led into these gas chambers. And it's like live video. It's just like, it kills you, man. And it's, that to me was the moment. I miss. And then, you know, it's, what's crazy is, you know, I'm the guy who could put a chip on my shoulder really easily. From there, I knew we were going to Germany and we were playing in this qualifier. So I'm over there, you know, at this, at Yad Vashem, watching this, listening, seeing all these artifacts, seeing how Hitler came to power the way he did it. The archive, they have an archive of every single name of, per, of, the, of the person, of people that died. I mean, it's overwhelming. And six million people, it's a ton of names. And it's like huge room. And then we're flying in Germany and we're playing Germany and, you know, I'm competitive. I'm like, dude, like there's ever a time to bury somebody out here. It's here. And we won that game. And I was very vocal in the dugout. And I'm like, hey, guys, like we're playing for a lot more than just baseball. There's a lot of pride that's on the stake. You know, this is not just any other baseball game. Be ready. And, you know, like constantly pressing, you know, getting on my teammates, like, yo, show up tonight. I don't care if we lose to France or Britain or Spain or Italy. The one team we need to win is here on their home turf is Germany. And I'm not, you know, discrediting the German players. They have nothing to do with what happened years ago. It's good competition. But like coming from Israel, seeing all that stuff, then going and being a, one of the first sports teams wearing an Israeli shirt to step foot over there and play in like meaningful games with heightened security traveling with us, it meant a lot. And, you know, I'd be lying to say it wasn't emotional for not only myself, but, you know, we had players on the team whose grandparents died in the Holocaust. Their parents are very, very emotional. Our head coach, you know, crying after the game. And we, we beat, we beat them. We beat Germany that night. And it was a, it was an emotional experience for a lot, a lot of, a lot of people. Do you think that after going, you know, you sort, of, you sort of get the call to be a part of the team, you agree to be a part of the team, being raised Jewish, it's important to you, but do you think some of that has changed since you've experienced that in Israel, what it now means to really Danny Valencia as part of Team Israel going to the Olympics? Yeah, you know, there's a great, great responsibility with it because, you know, there's t- this is not have a platform to be able to speak out and, you know, talk about anti-Semitism and inspire that you know, that Jewish kid who plays in Israel or who plays locally, who, you know, sometimes they feel like they're not good athletes. Like it's like in their head that they can't play sports. And we have these platforms and Ben Wenger's another one who's also on the team currently at UM that we, we can inspire a generation of, of, of Jewish baseball players. And I think it's important to, uh, you know, do all the right things that come, come with this responsibility. So how excited are you for the Olympics? Oh man, it's like the icing on the cake of a long career, you know, and, and every single step of the way, it's been a blessing looking back on it. But the fact that I'm playing at the, in the Olympics at 36 years old, at the end of my baseball career, not like prime Danny, it's pretty cool. Um, I've done a pretty good job of staying in good shape. Um, I've been hitting and throwing and taking ground balls for the past month or so. And the mini camp starts in May. I feel good. I like our chances. I like how our team's shaping up. We have Ian Kinsler on the squad. We're also on the works for another prominent Jewish baseball player who may or may not have played at the University of Miami. Uh-oh. Hopefully join our team. And that would really put us over the top and make us a real contender. Um, I'm not can we just say, can we say position player or pitcher? A position player. A position player that played at you. I'm not, you didn't mention him previously, did you? Because you said that was, uh, wasn't raised that way. But... You know, when we have a parent who may or may not be Israeli, we can facilitate it. Ah, but that's a nice little seed. That's not even out there in the public yet. I'm going to let you hold on to that one. Don't, <laughs> hopefully people overlook that one, but that's, that's in the works. We're hoping that that happens. I'm not even going to say a name yet, but you know who it is. Okay. All right. Milwaukee. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we got our fingers crossed because that really will make us a real contender. Okay, that would be awesome. Um, that would be a lot of notoriety for, for uh, the Olympics and Team Israel. You've also, if I'm not mistaken, you've taken a pretty prominent role, right? Kind of being an advocate for the team, speaking, raising money. Have you not? I'm our most veteran player and it comes to baseball experience. So, you know, I have responsibility. I could use my connections that I have here in the United States, you know, and, and, and definitely influence a lot of our players. They all kind of look up to me in a sense of, you know, routine and, 
and you know preparation and just approach and just little things that I picked up throughout the throughout my career that I could you know pass along to a lot of these guys who never played pro ball that are on our team you know we have a lot of guys who played only independent ball we have some guys who never played pro ball at all what's unique about our team is the conversation we have on the bus the conversation you have on the bus and the plane rides in the big leagues is all about baseball and material bullshit when you're on this team in Israel the conversation is so different it's education it's in money investments what are you going to do in the future how do we grow businesses how do we become successful off of the baseball field it's a different conversation the guys don't want to really be on the baseball team as much as they want to own the baseball team and i think that thought that logic it's unique because you don't experience it you don't talk about things like that with you know guys in the minor leagues it's all the big leagues it's all we gotta get to major leagues that's it it's a lot of those guys, most of them, none of them are playing in the big leagues and that's, that ship sailed. So the conversation and just the camaraderie, it's, it's something special and unique. And I think that's, it's really, really cool. To be All right. So after the Olympics, we just need to have a conversation. If you got any good tips, I would I appreciate if you pass some of those along. I'll tell you this, Ben Wanger is a guy that I would, I, I would be feeling totally confident to invest capital with a guy like Ben Wanger and what he wants to do when he's done playing baseball. This guy, you know, University of Miami, is an awesome baseball program. This guy went four years at Yale. All right. Graduate top of his class has a degree from there. Go, goes and does a one-year master's at University of Southern California. That's a really good school also. Now he's here doing a one-year master's for entrepreneurship at the University of Miami. This is a really polished guy. Might need to get him on the podcast. To, you know, I'm just saying just to, you know, grease the wheels a little bit. A hundred percent. This is a guy who wants to get into the energy sector and is a really, really cerebral guy. And I love ben, ben, what he brings to the table and what he brings to the University of Miami. All right, my friend. Well, no, I was gonna end it with a shalom, but I'll just end it with a thank you. And I've appreciated, this was, this was awesome on, on so many fronts. And uh, I love the bravado, dude. It works well. Hey, I just wanna give you real uncut, like what exactly I would like for me. That's just the truth, man. And I, I had a blast doing this with you. When you come back, we need to have you on just for, even it's a quick, you know, drop in to say hello and flash the gold. You better believe it. It's going to be, it's going to be a, a, a rosé and calamari type of celebration afterwards. There's not going to be a shirt on in sight, no shirts, only gold medal. Ah, that's what I'm talking about. We need a picture of that, all right? 100%, man. Take care.